Luke chapter 2 from verse 21. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise the child, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he was conceived. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves and two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem named Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went to the, into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, you have promised. You may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, and a glory of your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your soul too. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Penuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple, but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at the very, that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee at their own, to their own town, Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom and the grace of God was on him. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. After the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking that that he was in their company, they travelled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His, his, mother, went, his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me, he asked. Didn't you know that I had to be in my father's house? 
but they did not understand what he was saying to them. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart, and Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favour with God and man. Uh, Yeah, it's been a while since I've been up here, so I've got heaps to say. So that's good, isn't it? Uh, and as always, let me remind you that we've got a Q&A that will come after the sermon. Uh, so as we go along, if there's things that pop up you want to dig a little bit more and you want to ask questions of, um, please jot them down. You can text them to the number on the screen. That's my number. Uh, so you can call me later as well, ask questions if you like. Uh, but we'll have that time. Um, but let's get into it. Uh, I want to start uh, by telling you about my weekend last weekend. Last Saturday, not yesterday, the, the Saturday before, uh, I got to head up to my parents' place. They live up at Sunny Hawk's Nest. Um, but instead of spending my day at the beach like I like to up there, uh, I went up to lend my dad a hand in putting up his new shed. Uh, it wasn't a big one. It wasn't too tough a job, but he wanted an extra set of hands. Uh, and so I agreed. And up we went. Uh, and I spent the better part of the day out in the sun, uh, assembling metal sheets, uh, putting it all together, and and in the end we did end up with something that looked a little bit like a shed. There it is, there's proof. Uh, So it wasn't a big job, uh, but I've got to say at the end of the day, uh, when you see it all put together and functioning, the doors open and close, uh, there's a certain satisfaction that comes with it. There's that moment where you pack up the tools and you look at what you've done, And you breathe that sigh of relief. (sighs) Done. And you get to enjoy a job well done. And I reckon the bigger the job, the bigger the satisfaction, right? A shed is one thing. Uh, What about renovating a house after months and months and work and work? Uh, There's a satisfaction that goes with finishing something like that. At least that's what I've heard. Uh, If we ever finish ours, I'll let you know if it's true. Uh, but it's, it, there's something to it, isn't there? Uh, sometimes it's not just a job, but it's more than that, isn't it? It's a patch of your life or even your whole life. Uh, just uh, the last couple of weeks, we've been running our life course. Uh, and one of the big questions we ask at the start of that course is what would it take to breathe that sigh of relief, that, that sigh of satisfaction at the end of your life? What would you have had to have done? What would you have to have achieved through your life uh, to be able to say that you had a life well lived? Uh, We do. We discuss it at our tables at life, and there's always uh, a few different ideas. Uh, But I reckon the one that comes up the most uh, is family. You know, that idea to to have raised successful kids uh, that you've provided for, uh, and that want to spend time with you. And so the picture is kind of, you know, end of your life, your grandkids gathered around. Uh, maybe for you that's, that's the picture of a successful life. Uh, maybe there's another picture for you. Maybe your goal in life is to have made the most of every minute, uh, whether that's in travel or relationships or work or something else. Uh, maybe that's how you picture uh, uh a life worth living, a successful life. Uh, maybe something else entirely comes into your head. I, I don't know. Um, but, but I bring all this up because in today's passage, uh, we get to meet two characters, two older characters, uh, and we find both of them with that sigh of satisfaction. 
Uh, listen to this one line uh, that one of them says, a bloke named Simeon, Naomi read this. Uh, he says, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. That's a, a, a big line, isn't it? In other words, he's saying, I'm ready to die. My life is complete. I've done everything that I need to. Can you imagine being able to say that? Feeling so satisfied in your life, you can say to God, take me. I'm, I've got it. I'm done. And even more remarkable, I think, is that he's not saying it because he's had the family he wanted. Uh, he didn't achieve all that he wanted to in his career. He didn't travel the world. It's in fact not because of anything that Simeon has done, but rather it's because he looks upon the Saviour Jesus. It's an incredible thing, isn't it? Who of us could utter words like that? I suspect for for us who are Christians, uh, we signed up to follow Jesus knowing that he's all that we need. But if you're anything like me, it's very easy not to live like that. It's very easy to chase after fulfilment in all sorts of other places. Uh, And so today uh, we're going to be asking, well, how do we find that ah moment? All my notes have disappeared. All right. Sorry about that. Uh, Jace, can you uh, just tick along Uh, as I go? You'll just have to figure it out. Sorry. I'm normally so on top of it, so in control, but then technology. Um, I try to have that veneer at least anyway. Uh, So here we are. So this is where we're heading. Uh, So today uh, we're going to explore what it means that Jesus can bring the kind of fulfilment in life uh, that gives us that ah moment. Uh, We're going to think about that first by meeting the two people in this story uh, that have that moment in him that find their satisfaction in Jesus. And then we're going to go to to part B, we'll call it, of the sermon. And part B is all about asking, well, how is it that it happens? How does Jesus bring uh, contentment? And so we'll answer that by seeing two things. Uh, The first is the way that he brings contentment by bringing freedom from the law. Uh, And the second is that he and only he can do it. Uh, And that's because he is uniquely qualified for the job. Uh, So let's uh, dig into that first part, uh, the two people who find their fulfilment in Jesus. And the first, as we we heard of already, is Simeon. Uh, So we come across him in verse 25. Uh, We read, Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. Uh, So we don't get too much information about him. Uh, We don't know what his job was uh, or really anything about him aside from that he was righteous and devout. Uh, If the shepherds in last week's passage uh, represented the blue-collar average Joe on the street, uh, the picture of Simeon is the picture of a wise elder who spent his life walking alongside God. And now in his later years, we find he's eagerly awaiting the consolation of Israel, uh, which is really just a way of saying he's waiting for God's promises to come true. So just like we've seen over the last couple of weeks, uh, this passage is once again loaded with the anticipation of Old Testament promises coming to fulfilment. And the anticipation is particularly strong for Simeon 
Uh, Because unlike others, uh, even others who are equally righteous and devout, Simeon has a special glimpse of what's to come. Uh, We heard that in the reading. It said that it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. And more than that, he was at the temple that very day uh, because he was moved by the Holy Spirit to be there. God had orchestrated him being there uh, so uh, this promise of God's could come true. Uh, And look at what happens when he comes across Jesus. We read that Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. This news is enough for Simeon to contentedly die in peace. He has seen and in fact held the Messiah, the one who will not just bring glory to the people of Israel, uh, he'll also bring a light of revelation to the Gentiles. Um, now, if you're not familiar with that word Gentiles, it just means everyone who isn't from Israel. Uh, so it's quite a catch-all, isn't it? Uh, so uh, everyone in the world is covered uh, by these two pictures of Israel and the Gentiles. And so at its heart, this is a promise of salvation, a salvation that's available not just for Israel, but for all people, all nations. And then Simeon goes on to say something that's, uh, interestingly, uh, quite different from some of the things that we've heard, all of the things that we've heard so far uh, in the last few passages. Uh, So have a look from verse 34. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Here we get uh, the first hint that Jesus' coming might not be good for all of Israel, uh, that his coming will cause some to not just rise but to fall, uh, that he will be spoken against. Jesus is not coming to bring peace to all, but for some his coming is going to mean judgment. That's something that Jesus himself will confirm when he begins to teach. Uh, Have a listen to these uh, very similar words that we find from Jesus' own mouth in Matthew 10. He says, Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. See, what we're seeing is that Jesus' presence will be divisive. That's the story of his life as we read through the Gospels, isn't it? Some will give everything to follow him and others will do all that they can to have him killed. It won't all be easy for Jesus and ultimately he will die to bring about his purpose. And that seems to be what the sword which will pierce Mary's soul will be, seeing her son die. And so we have Simeon guided by the Holy Spirit to see the answer to God's promises arrive in the person of Jesus. And ultimately, we see him find total satisfaction in in Jesus. His encounter with Jesus equates to a life well lived, to fulfilment. We'll explore why that is soon. But first, uh, let's take a quick look at, at our second person fulfilled in Jesus, and that's Anna. 
Uh, so she comes along in verse 36. Uh, there was also a prophet, Anna, uh, the daughter of Penuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Israel. Uh, now, unlike Simeon, it's not just implied that Anna is very old. It's made quite clear. Uh, usually when we come across an older person in the Bible, we get some nice phrase like uh, she was well on in years or something like that. Uh, but we get it quite plainly. She was very old. Uh, so that's nice, isn't it? Uh, and she was. She was very old. Uh, and for most of her life, she'd been a widow, uh, which was a hard thing, a particularly hard thing back then. Uh, it's hard now. It was even harder uh, back in this time. Uh, we see that she doesn't have much of a social life. Uh, we're told she never left the temple. Rather, she spent her days and nights there uh, worshipping God, fasting and praying. Uh, and it's really a, a picture of longing, almost desperation. Uh, fasting tends to come, not always, but tends to come as an act of petition. And uh, so it seems as, as though she's longing for God to act. Uh, and as she approaches Jesus in the story, we see what it is that she's been longing for. Like Simeon, it's the redemption of Israel. And like Simeon, she sees that in Jesus comes, to, comes the answer to God's promises. Uh, and so we see her give thanks. And to all those around her who share her longing for the redemption of Israel, she points them to Jesus. And so we see in this passage two people who find this joy, this fulfillment, this satisfaction in Jesus. Uh, and, and again, I want to point out just how utterly profound that is. For us in a world full of things that promise satisfaction and, and yet never deliver, Anna and Simeon didn't find it in security or family or travel. They found it in Jesus. And for us, it begs the question, will, will Jesus be the place where we find our satisfaction in life? Uh, and perhaps you know the answer is yes, but you struggle to live it. And uh, so we're going to spend uh, the next two points, part B, if you will, thinking about why it is uh, that we can find that kind of fulfillment in Jesus. And in fact, more than that, we're going to see that ultimately it's only in Jesus that we can find real fulfillment. Uh, and the first place we're going to see that is as we look at Jesus and the law. And uh, now as you heard the passage read or, or perhaps uh, looked at it in your growth group, Maybe some of what Mary and Joseph were up to struck you as odd. Uh, have a look at verse 22. It said, When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jer Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Uh, the law of Moses means the law or rules that we find in the Old Testament, laws that in Jesus' time uh, anyone who was a committed Jew would have followed. Uh, the purification rites that it's mentioning here uh, come from Leviticus, a, a book in the Old Testament, uh, and that's in chapter 12 if you want to read about it. Uh, by the way, that, that's probably a good time to, to point out that at the bottom of your sheet on the handout, uh, all the extra references that I mentioned tonight. So if you want to go and chase any of them down, uh, read up on them, they're all there so you can check it out. 
Uh, but Leviticus 12 tells us uh, about what happens after a woman gives birth. Uh, so after giving birth, Mary was unclean and she had to wait about 40 days or a little bit longer if it was a girl that she had uh, to do these purification rites so that she could be considered clean again. Um, now that's just one law amongst hundreds uh, that a devout Jew would follow and those, those laws would dictate most aspects of their lives. Uh, and that might strike you as pretty full on if you haven't come across it before. Um, but for the Old Testament Jew, it was a necessary expression of your commitment to God. And one of the helpful things about this passage is, is that it shows us that Jesus grew up in a family that was thoroughly faithful in observing the Old Testament laws. Uh, we see the, that theme come up a number of times through this passage. I don't know if you noticed, as Naomi read. Uh, in verse 21, we see that Jesus was circumcised as the law required. Uh, verse 22, there's two aspects of the law coming out. The first, uh, as we've seen, the purification rites uh, required of Mary after giving birth. And, and incidentally there, uh, there's an, a nice little clue that Mary and Joseph were not wealthy. Uh, it tells us that they sacrificed birds, uh, and that was the sacrifice for someone who couldn't afford a lamb. Uh, so it gives us a sense of, of where they're at uh, in that social structure. Um, the other, other thing we see come up in that same verse, 22, is that they're presenting Jesus to the Lord. Uh, that's not something that necessarily needs to be done at the temple, uh, but it gives us a sense that they, they're sort of going above and beyond. Uh, they're the kind of family that go the extra mile when it comes to keeping the law. Uh, and then we get that summary verse down in verse 39 that tells us that Mary and Joseph had done everything required by the law. Uh, the next section uh, talks about the, the family travelling back to Jerusalem annually for the Passover festival. Um, that was a normal expectation for men in Israel, but often the poor were unable to do it. Uh, so it's good to note here that, that the whole family prioritised being there, even though they were poor and it wasn't necessary for all of them to be there. Uh, now that's a lot of detail, uh, but why is it important? Why are we, we trawling through that? Why are we looking at it? Why does it matter that Jesus' family kept the law? Well, it matters because Jesus was the one who brought a huge change when it came to the law. Uh, listen to this verse from Galatians chapter 4. Uh, but when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. One of the things that Jesus did in bringing uh, to all people salvation was this transition from being under the law to under grace. Uh, that is from living devoutly, following those hundreds of rules we find in the Old Testament, uh, like we see Mary and Joseph doing, to being instead saved by grace, saved simply by putting our faith in Jesus. And, and salvation is gifted to us by him. Um, now, that's a huge concept, a, a concept that we don't really have time to unpack fully today. Uh, if you want to dig into it, uh, we've done series both in Romans and Galatians over the last couple of years, uh, and, and we'll stick some links to the relevant sermons in tomorrow's email if you, if you want to hear a bit more about that. Uh, but for today, I want to just give you a quick overview of what is a really important uh, and incredible thing. So the law was a good gift that God gave his people. But it wasn't enough to bring salvation. Uh, the trouble with the law is that we can never fully keep it. 
Uh, it's captured really well in this verse from Romans, uh, so 3.20. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. Uh, when we did our Roman series, Liam liked to put it uh, as the law wasn't a ladder to take us up to heaven. It was a mirror to show us that we couldn't get there ourselves. That's a helpful image as we think about it. Uh, so take Mary and Joseph. They worked hard all their lives trying to keep the law. Uh, but ultimately, they can never get it quite right. Ultimately, they fail. They're unable to earn salvation through law-keeping. Uh, Kirst would say the same thing about our renovations. We'll never quite get there. We'll never have that ah moment as we finish. That's, that's law-keeping. We can never do enough. But the good news of the Bible is that, salva- is that the salvation Jesus came to bring was a salvation by grace, a salvation not earned but given. If it was left to us, we'd be constantly always worrying. Uh, we'd be wondering if we'd done enough to make it. And that's the reality of most world religions, isn't it? Always working, uh, always trying to make sure that we've done enough to make it, never really knowing. Uh, and the Bible's clear, we can't do it. We can't earn our own way. And I reckon it's not just true of other religions. I reckon there's a whole bunch of people out there who are living a version of Christianity that says you have to be good enough, that says you have to earn your way to heaven. Uh, but I want to I make sure we know that that is not the Christianity of the Bible. Jesus came to free us from the law so that it becomes about what he's done, not us which means we can be confident in him, satisfied in him, certain that heaven awaits. We can know that for sure. And Jesus could do that because he was the only one who has ever fully kept the law. He's the only one not guilty of breaking it, and so he's the only one who can redeem us from it. Let me read that verse from Galatians again. Uh, But when when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because Jesus kept the law, he could redeem us from it and bring us to something better, bring us to be adopted into God's family. Now, it's just a couple of short verses in today's passage that Jesus was brought up under the law, but it brings us to a huge earth-shattering truth that in Jesus we are not trapped trying to earn our way to heaven, an impossible challenge. Rather, we are given a guaranteed entry by the gift of grace. Uh, That's one really good reason to find our satisfaction in life in Jesus uh, because it's a satisfaction that doesn't just last to our deathbed, it lasts for all eternity. But I want to show you one more from the passage, and it comes from the mind-blowing reality of Jesus being both God and man. Uh, That's our third point, that Jesus is uniquely qualified. Uh, One of the interesting things about this passage is that it gives us the only glimpse that we have of Jesus as a boy. Uh, So Matthew gives us the story of his birth, Uh, And then we see nothing else until he starts his public ministry at about 30. Uh, And that's the point where both John and Mark start their story about Jesus. Uh, And so here in Luke, we we get the only real look at Jesus as he's growing up. Uh, We're told in the passage that he's 12. Uh, In Jewish culture at the time, it's at 13 that you start taking responsibility for your own actions. 
uh, and you sort of start a deliberate preparation for manhood. Uh, I think they would call that bar mitzvah now, though bar mitzvah didn't exist back then. Uh, we get this, sh- this very short uh, and in many ways almost comical account of the family trip to Jerusalem. Uh, as we saw before, they've travelled to Jerusalem for the Passover festival uh, and everything seems to have gone as normal until it's time to travel back. Uh, when it's time to leave, Mary and Joseph pack up and head off uh, and we find that it's not, a, not until a day into their journey that they realise Jesus isn't with them. And now back before I had kids, I was very critical uh, of Mary and Joseph at this point in the story. How could you lose your kid? Uh, Now that I've got kids, my sympathy runs a little bit higher. Uh, We seem to lose our kids all the time and we mostly do it at our own house. So so it seems a bit more reasonable now. But I want to make it even more reasonable by giving you some context just to help make sense of the story. Uh, The group that Mary and Joseph would have travelled back to Nazareth with would have been quite large. Uh, So extended relatives, other people from Nazareth, all kind of travelling in a big train, uh, and that helped bring safety on the road. Uh, and it was fairly typical in a group like that uh, that the men and the women would travel at different ends of the baggage train. Uh, so you can kind of imagine each one thinking that Jesus is with the other. Uh, you can easily picture, can't you, that moment where they realise, where Mary comes up to Joseph and, oh, where's Jesus? And Joseph says, oh, isn't she with you? No, I thought he was with you. Oh, no. And they have that moment where they realise it dawns on them that they've lost him. And imagine when then it sinks in a bit deeper and you realise you've lost the Messiah. That's a lot worse than losing your wallet or your car keys, isn't it? They would be frantic. Uh, So we see they race back to Jerusalem. There's another day's travel. And then they spend a day looking until finally they find him in the temple after three days of being lost. You can just picture any mother uh, saying what Mary says, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. It's the same, isn't it? We'd say the same sort of thing. We were worried sick. How could you do this to us? But then notice how Jesus responds. Uh, this is, this is mind-blowing, isn't it? Verse 49, why, why were you searching for me, he asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? Uh, Now take note, these are the first recorded words of Jesus. And they're profound, aren't they? Now we tend to refer to God as Father, but we can only do that because of what Jesus has done. In Jesus' time, to use that kind of language was outrageous. Uh, In fact, it's one of the reasons that the Jewish leaders would go on to kill Jesus. Uh, So to just give you an example, look at this verse from John 5. For this reason they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. As we make our way through the Gospels, uh, we're left in no doubt about Jesus' claims. He claims to be God. And that claim starts here in Jesus' very first recorded words. But in this passage, we see not just Jesus' deity, not just that Jesus is God, we we see his humanity as well. Uh, This passage, comical as it is in many ways, it's also an incredible picture of Jesus as both a very unusual child and a very normal one. He stands out as different, doesn't he? He stands in the temple declaring he's in his father's house at age 12. He wows people with his understanding as he interacts with the teachers. 
That's unusual. But he's also very normal, isn't he? The last verse in the passage tells us that he grew in wisdom and stature and in favour with God and man. So this saviour didn't just arrive fully grown, fully mature. He was born in flesh as a baby. He grew. He grew in body and in wisdom. Jesus was both fully man and fully God. Um, now, that's not just something that we find here in this passage. It's, it's something that uh, unpacks through, throughout the New Testament, throughout the Bible. But it is something that's made really clear. And it's a truth that's really important that we hold on to. Because without being both, he couldn't be the saviour that we needed. I think this is one of the key things for us to hold on to from this passage, the picture of Jesus as both God and man. Uh, A bit like when we talked about Jesus fulfilling the law, this is something we could spend weeks worth of sermons on. We're not going to. Uh, And so if you want to chat more about it, I'd love to later. Uh, But let me give you a real quick glimpse of just part of why it's so important that Jesus is both God and man. Uh, And I want to take you to uh, a verse in Hebrews, Hebrews 2.17. Uh, we read, for this reason he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. See what's going on there? It's only by being fully human that Jesus is able to save us humans. That's true because Jesus became our substitute. When he died on the cross, he took our place. And so to be an appropriate substitute, he had to be human like us. But at the same time, in order to bear the full weight of the penalty of the sin of all those who believe, he needed to be God as well. Uh, Because any finite creature would be incapable of bearing that penalty. That's because Jesus didn't just die a physical death. Uh, When he was on the cross, it wasn't just a physical death. He actually bore the punishment for all sin. Once for all, the Bible tells us, one human life doesn't pay for billions. And so it was necessary that God die on the cross. See, it's vital that we hold on to Jesus as both fully man and fully God. Because without being both, he can't be the saviour we need. But because he is both, he is uniquely the one person in history that can bring salvation. That can bring us contentment that lasts from this life into the next. Now, we started today thinking about that ah moment. We started thinking about it for a shed. But then we we came to ask, what would it be like to get to the end of our life fully satisfied, living a life well lived? Now, we met Anna and Simeon, two people who experienced that satisfaction, not because of their achievements, not because of a wonderful family or or travel or anything else, but because they met the Saviour. And we've seen that we can only find that kind of satisfaction in Jesus because he is the only one who sets us free from works and instead gives us grace. He's the only one who is uniquely qualified to, the, to do the job, both man and God, able to take the, the punishment for our sin. And so it leaves us with the question, Knowing all that, why is it so easy for other things to draw us away from finding our satisfaction in Jesus? Uh, I want to share a quick story that a friend of mine shared with me. Uh, It's a story about his grandma. Uh, She, like Anna, was getting on in years. Uh, She was about 80, I think, at the time. 
Uh, and as it happened, it was, it was right at the end of her life. And it was then at the very end of her life that she realized the truth of Jesus. She became a Christian. She, she hadn't been for a whole life. Uh, she'd ignored his truth and then became a Christian. And that was, of course, a huge moment uh, for my friend's family uh, that, that she came to Christ. But I reckon what is most striking about it is what she said, having become a Christian. Uh, these were her words. She said, I've wasted my life. For her, looking back on 80 years without Jesus, it brought some sadness. She recognised 80 wasted years, 80 years that she'd spent chasing other things, things that ultimately couldn't satisfy I want to urge us all today not to make the same mistake that she did. I want to encourage you to fix your eyes on Jesus, the one and only one that can bring fulfilment. For some of us, that will mean putting our trust in Jesus for the very first time. Uh, Perhaps you've been hovering for a while, checking Jesus out. Let me encourage you to come and find the hope that he offers, a hope that lasts into eternity. But for many of us, we already know that Jesus is the only place we can find fulfillment, the only place we can find true contentment. But we're just struggling, aren't we? We're we're struggling not to get distracted by the stuff around us. At my growth group this week, we we talked about it as the shiny things that that draw our eyes away from Jesus. Most of them aren't bad things in themselves, but over time they hook us in. They start promising satisfaction, but they just can't deliver, can they? But we keep looking towards them anyway. I wonder what it is for you. What's the shiny thing in your life that draws your eyes away from Jesus? Uh, We mentioned some of them before, good things like family or travel, well-intentioned things like financial security, not sinful things in themselves. Uh, nothing wrong with having those things in your life, let me say, but, but each of them have that potential to draw our eyes away from Jesus, draw us away from finding satisfaction in the only place where it lasts. I've got a whole bunch of them, a whole lot of shiny things in my life. Uh, a really simple one for me is just stuff. I love getting new things, a, a new phone, a bigger TV, a new gizmo to help me do my brewing, Uh, they draw me in. And I want to, again, be clear that there's nothing inherently sinful in any of those things. But for me, I know know there's a danger because it's easy to to slip into making life about those things instead of about Jesus. And, And it's silly because I know that ultimately none of those things can satisfy. They'll never, never give me that moment of satisfaction that lasts. Straight away, I'll be on to the next thing, trying to fill that hole. But they're shiny and they draw my eyes away from where they should be. For me, I think the easiest way to recognize that it's happening is to notice what I'm spending my downtime thinking about. Where does my mind wander? What am I thinking about over and over again? Uh, And for me, that's a sign that I'm pulling away from Jesus and and that it's time to do something about it. And and sure enough, when I do, when I fix my eyes back on Jesus, it's like a weight has been lifted. 
freedom again. What are the shiny things in your life? What is it that draws your eyes away from Jesus? What is it that you spend your downtime thinking about? Because I think unless we we look deliberately, it's really easy to miss them. I remember years ago having a a mum of one of the kids in the youth group I was running uh, say to me that getting her kids to youth was her top priority. And so she said, so as long as there isn't study, sport or family stuff on, they'll be there. She was surrounded by shiny things and she didn't even realise it. Surrounded by things that are great, good things, but none of them could offer the hope that will last into, a, into eternity. And it's heartbreaking when we see that happening. And so the call today is to check your blind spots. Make sure you don't have any shiny things lurking there. And when you find them, to move your eyes back to Jesus. How do we do that? How do we move our eyes away from those shiny things and back to Jesus? Uh, Well, the answer is the application that we could give just about every week uh, in the sermon. Uh, Three things. Read the Bible, pray, and get together with other Christians. It's the answer to just about any problem, but it's what we need. Read the Bible. Be reminded of all that God has done for you. Be reminded of the hope that you can't find anywhere else. Then pray. God is powerful. He answers our prayers, so ask him to help you. Keep focus on what really matters. Make make that a daily prayer that you'd recognize when things are pulling your eyes off Jesus and that you'd shift your eyes back to him. And get together with other Christians. Jesus didn't free us from the law so that we'd go it alone. We've been adopted into God's family, a family of believers who want to build one another up. And so make the most of that family. We call our growth groups growth groups because they're not just Bible studies, but it's gathering together with our Jesus family, helping one another to grow in Jesus. And for me, it's one of the key parts of my, my week that helps the rubber hit the road when it comes to living for Jesus. Find opportunities to gather with other Christians. Let them spur you on, build you up, and keep your eye on Jesus. The very last thing I want to say is to do all this today. In my experience, uh, that it's really common that we think, well, once I get past this next obstacle, then I'll get serious about my faith. Once the kids are older, once I've paid off the house, once I've seen the world, whatever it is, don't put it off. Because when we focus on the shiny things, that later never comes. We have the answer to true contentment. Don't waste your life missing what's most important. Let's pray. Lord, we want to thank you for the incredible gift that we have in Jesus our Saviour. Lord, we thank you that you sent Jesus to live a life among us, that God became man, uh, and because he did that, uh, he was able to save us. He brought a salvation that, that there was no way we could earn ourselves. And so we thank you for that. And we thank you for that wonderful picture of Anna and Simeon and, and the contentment they found in seeing Jesus. And, and we pray for that same contentment. Help us to fix our eyes on him. Help us to know 
uh, that true contentment that comes from a life lived for Jesus. Lord, we know that we are surrounded by shiny things, uh, and so we ask that you help us identify them, help us know those things in our lives, uh, and help us to do what we need to, uh, to tear our eyes from them and back to Jesus. Help us to do that together as a family of believers. Uh, And we pray that in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. I know we have a really brief moment for questions. Uh, If anyone has any, maybe I'll send Ben around with a microphone. He's got one. Look at him go. You can always sit with me for dinner if you want. Uh, Glennis has a question. Peace to all men. Um, On which his favour rests, I noted. But then Mm. in Matthew... 10, he says he did not come to bring peace. Ah, so just got to listen to last week's sermon. Ah. Easy. Uh, yeah, so it's peace to all those on whom his favour rests. Uh, so it's not on everyone. It's, it's peace on, on those that are God's. Um, and it's the same thing, isn't it? So there is peace, uh, but it's divisive. So some, some will find it and some won't. What do we do with Jesus? Yeah. Anybody else? I've got two more. <laughs> Glennis has got more questions. Very good. We can have dinner together if you like, Jan- Glennis. Sorry. Go, go, go. Um, okay. Sorry, sorry. Um, so um, in Luke we read that after they had gone for the purification ceremony, which would have been about 40 days mm-hmm. after Jesus' birth, they returned to Galilee to the town of Nazareth. And yet, somewhere else we read that they took off to Egypt. Yeah, yeah. Please so it, it doesn't give us the timing on that. So was that before the 40 days? Was it uh, Well, they wouldn't after? have taken off to Egypt because... The wise men didn't arrive. Yeah, so I guess it was in the forty days. I don't know. I haven't actually looked into it, but but we're not because we're not given time frames. Where yeah, it must fit in what we're told. That's the uh, that's one of the things with the wise men. So they uh, we think the wise men were at the birth. Well, no, no. At least two years. That's why King Herod said we have to kill all the baby boys under two. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So we're told we're not told a detailed timeline. We're just told these are the things that happened. Yeah. You said you said Jesus claims to be God, but it was saying he was the Son of God when he said, "Didn't you know I had to be in my Father's house?" He wasn't claiming to be God. Yeah, he was claiming yeah. to be God's son. Yeah, so if you look at that John reference I gave you, so he claimed to be uh, called God his father, claiming to be equal with God. So for them, that that was the implication. Yeah, um, and but we're not stuck on that one verse. We're told multiple times that Jesus claims to be God. Yeah, and I can give you a list if you like. Alan, we probably uh, should make this the last. Which Alan? Where's Alan? Alan had a hand up. Oh, Benny. 
So Simeon was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Anna was waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. How do you compare those two? Same, same. Yep, yep. It's the same thing. It's, they're just pointing to the same God bringing about his promises that, yep, just slightly different wording, but they're meaning the same thing. All right. Well, we get the band up here. If uh, I'm very happy to chat over dinner with anyone who wants to chat. <laughs>